0: Navy veteran Nick Hawks, founder of Paleo Treats is up next on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that job trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. My good friend and fellow veteran, Bob Ulin has come out with his new book titled Transitions 2.0. This is the best book for any transitioning veteran. Check out Transitions 2.0 at veteranonthemove.com slash transitions. Hey, today I'm talking to Nick Hawks, Navy veteran. And before we get to talk about business and entrepreneurship, Nick, take us back and tell us a little bit about your experience in the Navy.
1: Sure. Uh, I joined in 1995. I had a couple of heroes of mine in my family, and an uncle, uh, specifically, who was a Navy guy. He was actually a SEAL, and I thought that was the coolest thing you could do. I was a little shrimp of a dude. I weighed 128 pounds when I went to boot camp, and I thought that was a pretty awesome path to take. So, shot down that road as far as I could go, had a really good time in the Navy, um, doing kind of all the stuff that I'd dreamed about, and then realized after the first platoon that I did, I looked around and there was a kind of this pattern of, of jumping and shooting and drinking and diving and doing all that fun stuff. But I could see that that pattern was going to repeat kind of ad nauseum for me. And it was before the war. Um, and so I looked around and looked for other opportunities and saw a bunch of them on the outside and decided to, to get out. So September of nine, no, September of 2000, September 13th, I got out of the Navy and Entered into CivDiv and um, with a couple short stints back working for those guys as a civilian. Other than that, I've uh, been a full-on civilian the whole time.
0: All right. So, can you talk a little bit about what your transition was like? I mean, wh- wh- were you weren't looking to get out and get a job in corporate America. So, what what was your transition like, and what were you thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, when I when I first got out, that's that was the path I thought everybody took. Well to go to Stanford to swim in the Olympics and to be a fifth graded teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, none of, none of that worked out. So I met met a woman who ended up being my wife and she was a full on entrepreneur. She had a hard time, not a hard time. She just didn't want to work for anybody. She valued her freedom a bunch. And that, that value really rubbed off on me. And I started to see all of the possibilities that were open to me if I ran my own show. So I, I made kind of a slow transition I, and it's a tough one. I think this is the the big thing that just doesn't get conveyed successfully as you're, as you're getting out through, you know, what used to be called in the Navy taps, transition assistance program. I'm not sure if they still run it, mm-hmm. um, but it was, you know, that stuff was kind of the, the boring paperworky admin stuff that is, is super, um, common in a bureaucracy where it's, it's a safe thing to have lists. That you can check off and then say, well, look, I checked everything off in the list. If it didn't work out, it wasn't my fault. And that's not really how I found the, the real world to work. Um, the, the actual world that a businessman or an entrepreneur, uh, enters into demands, everything needed to be successful. And there's no checklist I found that has everything on there that, that checklist were it to exist would be constantly evolving and fluid and boxes would be dropping off and other ones would be coming on and they'd be popping in and out of certain dimensions. It would just be this wildly dynamic thing. So it's just, it's not an effective way of, of being successful. And so when you ask about the transition, you know, as, as a military guy, any military guy or girl, um, you're just so used to checklists to pre-deployment checklists, to making sure you got all your kit in your bag for, whatever operation you're going to run. And it's a really easy way to be kind of safe and to keep you safe in a physical sense. But that aspect of the military life, I haven't found to transfer really well or effectively to the the civilian world.
0: Yeah, you know, we talk about that a lot on Veteran on the Move. And one of the ways I like to put it and and see, see if you agree or understand what I'm talking about, Veterans have a lot of real, – they're really good at soft skills, dealing with people, uh, staying motivated, mission accomplishment, discipline, um, that whole I'm not going to give up until I, I figure this out and I get to the other side kind of mentality. And a lot of that stuff doesn't transfer to the resume and the stuff that transfers to resume is typically referred to as hard skills like I'm a CPA, I've got my MBA. I'm a Six Sigma black belt. All these things that the HR department at the corporation is looking for that they can, uh, you know, what kind of degree you have, your GPA, all these tangible things that they can relate to. And what gets missed from most of your military folks is all those soft skills. And it's really the soft skills that make veterans great, great entrepreneurs. And it also makes them great employees most of the time. But so what you're talking about, this fluid environment, it's mostly constantly bringing, bringing some of your soft skills in and out, but at the same time, having enough of those hard skills or at least surrounding yourself with people that have those hard skills to continue to move forward in this you know, civilian and entrepreneur environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense and a lot of the the hard skills that you learn in the military just they don't transfer well. So even if you're say a, a master training specialist, um, which is a, a Navy thing or was a big Navy thing, it doesn't transfer that well out to the real world. And especially skills like, you know, jumping out of airplanes or shooting or diving or or those things, you, nobody really cares and they're not useful skills in the regular world. And so guys get out. I certainly got out and thought that I had this quiver of of really well-honed skills that not many other people had that was a you know the usual buzzwords right now the unique intersection of of skill sets or the talent stack or whatever you want to call it and it was useless and and that's a pretty rotten feeling until you kind of reframe it and figure out that the the healthy perspective to take on that is the military has spent a lot of time in training you to learn how to do new skills pretty well really quickly and that's the valuable thing that, that I think most veterans take away from the military, whether they know it or not, is that they can step into any job. And just like they were trained to be a cook or an electrician or um, a cryptographer or whatever it was in six months or three months or whatever their A school or their, their first school was, they can learn a new job really quickly and really well um, wherever they go, whether they're an employee or, or a business owner. And I think that's the the kind of hidden skill that everybody walks away with, whether they know it or not.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I to use an analogy, you know, all the not just deployments, but but training debts that you would go on, uh, depending on what kind of operations you're involved in. You show up to a place you've never been to before. You you, you immediately you start unpacking stuff. Typically, when we're in the rear, we keep stuff fairly. Well packed because we know we're going to be leaving again. We just don't know when or where we're going. So that's one of the things I know. As a marine, we would keep stuff packed up in in seven cubes and uh, boxes all the time. And all you almost all you had to do is put the lid on, and and throw it on the pallet, and, and you're off and running. But when you arrived, you would immediately as a, as a as a cobra pilot, you you arrive, you immediately you start you gathering the frequencies, course rules maps charts all the gps stuff and within a, a day or two you're familiar with the area familiar with the procedures in and out and you've now, and you, and you've got your living arrangements set up whatever you sleeping in a sleeping in a tent cot ground whatever and you're within a couple of days you're fully functional and operating in a completely foreign environment but in the civilian world they don't do that a lot with with most jobs there's a lot of jobs they they do do that with but as a, as a military person that's deployed many times and done lots of training debts, just showing up and learning something brand new, a brand new area, um, you get really good at that. And you know how often how often in the Navy did you change jobs? You, you change jobs all the time. So I guess the negative is you may not yeah, get really really good at it, but you're used to picking up and starting over all the time. So you get, you know, like you mentioned, you do get really good at learning new things quickly.
1: Yep. And I I think on top of that, and maybe a step back is this idea of, of being able to build relationships, um, quickly and having an inherent understanding of their importance. So if you come to a new place, you get to a, wherever a new base, a new operating post, whatever it is, if you don't kind of go out and meet the folks who have been there, then you are, you're just giving up so much information and such an advantage. And so I know whenever, you know, I go somewhere new, the first thing I do is is go out and try and meet people and figure out like, hey, what's going on in this town? Who's who's into what? What's what's hot here? What's interesting? What can I find out? And there's part of it that's just the natural kind of curiosity and stoke that that I've always had. But part of that comes from being in in that military environment and going through, okay, boot camps eight weeks and you make, you know, the best friends of your life in boot camp. And then you go to A school and that's another whatever it is, 16 weeks. And for me as a corpsman, like, Oh, you're going to meet some more really good friends. And then you go to the next thing and that's 23 weeks. And that you'd like every couple months you're making these really strong relationships. And it, I I think that's just this hugely valuable thing that doesn't, that doesn't get, um, that the experience base doesn't come along in the civilian world as well. Cause there's no kind of forcing of the relationship or in the military. If you don't have those relationships and you don't build them, you just, you lose out on a lot of opportunity.
0: Yeah. It's almost like, It's, um, that's almost like the military version of networking.
1: Yeah. 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 But a lot deeper. And I I think a lot of this stuff is just figuring out the perspective that you need to take in order to reap the benefits of the experiences you've had. Right. You can go through any of these schools and say like, oh, that was a waste of my time or going to whatever it was, core school. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't learn this or I didn't get that. Or you can look at it and say, man, here's this massive organization that the United States Navy that's taking time to pour information into me. And the best thing I can do is kind of open wide and and swallow and digest as much of it as I can and look around and see where the other opportunities are. Can I use the gym? Can I make new friends? Can I explore this area? Can I learn something else new on top of all this and kind of stack all of these different experiences and get paid to do it there, there's no opportunity like it anywhere but a lot of times that perspective isn't explained to kind of the young dudes coming in so they miss out on a lot of it because you you do have to hustle a little bit to get all of the all of the juice out of that experience but what i found is once guys had done like one or two platoons and they decided they were going to stay in or one or two cycles and decided they were going to stay in and they they cottoned on to that idea of really wringing the most out of the the Navy and the military service that they could, all of a sudden, their careers exploded. And maybe not upward. Like I, I think that's not as important, but just their ability as a human and as a, a military person went way beyond what you would see on on their resume. And that was just from that perspective shift.
0: Oh yeah, and I think I think a lot of the a lot of the younger military folks they they can fall into that trap easily. You know, they on the weekends they they never leave base or they never leave the post or even when they're overseas like you know, whether it's Okinawa, Japan, Germany if they're living on, on living in the barracks on base heck they hardly ever make it outside the front gate even on the weekends uh, to to go explore and see what's going on out in town um, which is
1: crazy i mean Kadena is yeah. that huge base and I, it it may be shut down now i thought i saw something recently like we're always behaving pretty poorly over there and the japanese government seems to be getting more <laughs> more sick of it yeah but man i was me and my buddies were getting off that base every opportunity we had. There's an amazing diving there. There's all kinds of wild tourist things to see. We drove up and down that whole stretch. And then you think about, you know, the, the military history specifically for Americans there is incredibly deep. Um, and it's, you know, just as you're driving, right? This is, this is where a lot of the kind of fear came from in, in World War II about, hey, we're going to have to take this place over. And it was, oh, it's, it's amazing.
0: Oh yeah. And all, all the, all the caves that still exist with, I mean, they've, they've closed a lot of them off and a lot of them been pilfered at this point, but there, there are still caves all, all over Okinawa where guys go crawling around in them with, yep. you know, long centipedes and everything else. But, um, yeah, I learned to scuba dive in Okinawa. So, um, it's a yeah. phenomenal place. So, so what have you been involved in, uh, you know, here recently is on, on the entrepreneurship side of things? So it started, gosh, in,
1: I think I went to school for a couple of years on the GI bill uh, after I got out, decided I didn't like it or that it wasn't, wasn't for me. It wasn't the way that I was going to learn and progress. And then I started the f- first, um, enterprise that I, I thought I'd start was this thing called Exup Inc, E-X-U-P. And it, it came from an idea. I went over and contracted in Iraq for a little while and I was on this base just outside of Baghdad, um, and watching All of the, so I was running, running security for this base, me and a couple of the guys watching all of the, uh, the shit trucks come in, all the water trucks, all the food, all the supply trucks coming in in and out every day. And you think about in 2004, this was a couple months after Fallujah, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who drives a, a waste truck in Iraq? It's not the most trustworthy person. Like that's not the, yeah, that's not a dude that, that, um, is going to be super easy to trust. And it's probably a dude who it's pretty easy to flip his, um, his loyalties either way. And so as I looked around and, and I've always been a little bit of a hippie and started thinking, okay, what if we approached this camp as if we were going to build a self-sustaining, um, kind of module. And so the idea I had was to put everything you needed to build all these different buildings into a, Ship a container and then you could ship those containers anywhere in the world, open them up, pull out the solar panels, the ICF, the insulated concrete form walls, the instructions for how to set up gray water and black water and composting and all the, all the rest of it, the wind turbines. And you would take a 68 acre camp with a couple hundred people on it that needed, gosh, like six water truck deliveries daily um, and you would take that down to one or two per week and you started collecting all the rainwater and storing it on site and having distributed power generation because solar panels were on all the roofs. Mm. And so if, as it happened about a month after I left, a mortar came in and knocked out the main building where the two backup generators were, mm. um, the camp was without power for a couple, you know, a couple weeks that wouldn't have happened, you know, had these ideas that I had come into play, but I didn't, didn't know what I was doing. So I had a really good idea. had no idea how to execute on it though. Didn't know anything about marketing. Um, hadn't really developed that, that really strong relationship idea yet. And so spent most of my time building a website and kind of describing what I wanted to do and hoping that someone would come along, hoping unconsciously that someone would come along and help me actually execute on it. And that didn't happen. So
0: what ran out of Somebody money. didn't like think you had a great idea and just came along and help you help you execute.
1: <laughs> Isn't that funny, huh? Oh, I know.
0: <laughs> so uh, that there.
1: was a, that was a yeah i think most of us have um, that was a a failure from a business point but i learned a bunch like okay you're going to have to put the whole pack together and then i went and did something that i don't know if i'd call it entrepreneurship but i was a, a mobile notary during the um massive real estate boom especially out here in california oh yeah and that was you know 2005 to maybe ending by 2009 and so i'd drive around all over southern california house in san diego drive a couple hours every night um one you know, one way, and then drive a couple hours back and sign people up for home loans and so that was three hundred bucks a pop. It was you know I'd stack a couple on top of each other and make a thousand bucks a day and it was you could either go over to Iraq and make seven hundred a day being away from your family and being in Iraq or you could be in Southern California driving a bunch but making a thousand bucks a day and and the, the one I chose was was to stick around huh. and so that taught me a bunch just about running my own books. It was such a a basic, straightforward business. Um, and I think the biggest lesson I learned there was how important looks were. And as funny as it sounds, I'd never picked this up in the military. I'd always been that hmm. guy that tried to get away with not shaving, that tried to not get the haircut, that always had the uniforms that weren't quite perfect, that you know wore flip flops when you're supposed to wear shoes. Like that was totally me because um, <laughs> I just didn't think that appearances were important. I thought it was such a stupid thing. And what would really matter was how accurately and fast I could shoot or you know how good I was at the actual job. And when I became the notary, I was I was sure that I could do a better job than anyone else. Like I had every, all of my paperwork organized. I had my little maps, you know, all my MapQuest maps printed out. This was 2004, so pre kind of uh, turn-by-turn phone stuff, GPS stuff. And I would go in. To a um a loan office to countrywide at the time, which is my biggest customer. And I'd see these guys who were dressed to the nines, but I could look at their paperwork and know they were sloppy, and I would hear that they'd have to go out and do something again. And I could just tell by the way they talked, like they weren't wired tight, but they looked, they looked a lot better than I did.
0: Mm.
1: And so I got one day I said, All right, you know, I'm I'm gonna see if this actually makes a difference. So I went down to Nordstrom. I found a dude there. I said, look, I don't know anything about looking good. You can you can look at me and see that. Like I dress in shorts and a t-shirt all the time. Here's a thousand bucks. Do your best to make me look like a professional businessman. So I you know, got a shirt and a you know, belt and pants and nice shoes and all the rest of it. Walked out of there looking like I knew what I was doing. I walked in the next day to that same countrywide office and people were like, hey, uh, I've got a loan for you. Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? It was an overnight transition. I thought it was the simultaneously the stupidest thing on all sides I'd ever seen it was so stupid of me not to have seen it and it was so stupid of them to see that I was the same person literally just dressed in different clothes and all of a sudden it was a desirable thing so from then on it's like okay appearances appearances count Um, and that was that was a huge lesson that I took away from that that I still don't always put into practice but at least it's there it's like okay if you want to make this one count you're going to dress up you're going to look sharp yeah
0: That's great, yeah. Oh, I've experienced that many times myself. Hey, Nick, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Army veteran Bob Eulen knows the struggles veterans face in the transition process and has dedicated his post-retirement years to helping veterans successfully transition into the civilian sector. His new book, Transitions 2.0, is one of the best books for any veteran facing the transition process. You can find Transitions 2.0 at veteranonthemove.com slash transitions. Also, Bob Yellen is the Chairman and CEO of the Center for Transitional Leadership. CTL seeks to assist and empower Armed Forces personnel during their transition from military service to private sector employment, with particular focus on helping military men and women position themselves to be sought-after candidates in the civilian workforce. I have the pleasure of serving on the Board of Directors for CTL, and you can check out the CTL website, by going to veteranonthemove.com slash ctl. All right, we're back talking to Nick Hawks, a Navy veteran and also owner of Paleo Treats, which we're going to be talking about here in a minute. Uh, Nick, before the break, you were talking about uh, doing mortgages and, and a notary, a traveling notary. I had a couple of those guys come to my house over the years during the heyday, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I've also experienced, even to this day, I still experience, like, I'm an airline pilot, so when I commute to where I'm based at in New York. Sometimes if I'm going the day before, I'll just wear regular old civilian clothes. And sometimes I'm wearing my actual airline uniform. It's a totally different, it's totally different how everybody looks at you and treats you when you're in uniform. And this is not like a necessarily fancy uniform, but obviously they look at you and it's like, so people judge you definitely by the clothes you wear and the appearance you have. And and there are times where if I, think I need to have a little more, uh, like if, if the, if the flights are going to be full and I might you know need a gate agent to help me out, I'll definitely make sure I'm in uniform because I know I can get preferential treatment almost, um, just by having a uniform on versus, you know, just having the ID hanging around my neck. So, um, even to this day, um, you know, I still experience that. So, so Nick, eventually when, uh, the mortgage industry crashed, uh, you know, what happened after that and, and, and take us up to where you are now.
1: Sure. So probably skip over a couple of years. Okay. Um, got the most important thing is I we had another company, a t-shirt company that, uh, went into Nordstrom and Fred Siegel, which are, are big names in the fashion world, but went bankrupt there. Didn't really know what we were doing still. You'd think I would have learned this is the third, third or fourth business I'd had, um, but still didn't have totally everything together. And so when that went under, um, I was working for the, I was went back to and worked for the Navy. So I got a regular job and I think this is an important piece is that it's totally okay to, to have a job. It's not like, uh, they're, they're evil, inherently evil things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that's what it was for me. So I went back as an instructor for the Navy, teaching people how to swim and dive. Um, and, and, once we went bankrupt on quiet hero, which was the t-shirt company, it went from like 10,000 bucks a month going out. And I was making 6,000 bucks a month as an instructor or 5,000, whatever it was. And so there's negative 5,000 every month and you're just watching yourself spiral down. And it's, it's pretty unpleasant. And once you declare bankruptcy, none of the, none of the people can, none of the creditors can uh, contact you. So everything goes quiet and you actually have time to think. And then you Make your decision whether you're going to do a chapter 13, which is where you pay a percentage back, or a chapter 7, which is where you pay nothing back, but you don't get to keep anything. We did we did the chapter 13, took a couple of years to pay off. But either way, all payments going out stopped. And so for about two weeks, my wife and I were were stoked. It was like, oh, the, like the pressure that came off was so noticeable and and enjoyable to not have it there that we're like, oh, this is great. But within a couple of weeks, it's like, oh, what, what are we going to do with all this free time? And so we ended up, I had a friend of mine move out from the East coast, moved in with me and he was eating paleo and paleo is no gluten, no grain, no dairy. It's this idea of eating the way that you evolved to eat over the course of 2 million years. Um, so it's cutting out kind of everything that came along in the last 10,000 years, all the products of agriculture, all dairy, um, all the processed sugar, all the stabilizers and preservatives that are in most of today's food. So at the time in 2009, uh, You could get a steak and salad. You've always been able to get a steak and salad and and kind of eat paleo for your regular meals, but there wasn't anything for dessert. And so after a couple of weeks of eating paleo, Lee, my wife and I looked at Dave, the guy who had moved in and and he was eating paleo and said, Dave, where where do we get dessert, dude? And it didn't exist. So the three of us were sitting around my kitchen table and and, uh, decided like, oh, let's see if we can start a company based on providing desserts for this diet to people who are in it. And at the time... Really the only people who were eating paleo were that we knew about were CrossFitters. And CrossFit then was a pretty small and intensely kind of tightly knit community. And they were super supportive of us. We mm-hmm. kind of came out with the first one at the I think the third CrossFit Games that was still up in Aromas, still up at the ranch. And we made two thousand treats in our kitchen, which if you and your friend hold hands and stretch your arms out as wide as you can and turn in a circle, that's about how big our kitchen is. So it's just this kind of Chaotic mess of of the three of us swearing and cursing and, and and kind of shouting and mixing cookie dough and baking cookies and packing stuff up <laughs> And took them up to uh, took them up to the ranch as a three-day event And we said we're gonna sell as many as we can We will kind of give a bunch away at the end of it and Whatever's left over after that we'll pay, take back down to san diego and at the time there were eight crossfits in existence in san diego Now there's probably I don't know 200 um and we'll give, we'll give, you know, the rest away and just, we'll, that's how we'll start the marketing stuff. But it didn't turn out that way. We, we sold out, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on the second day, we had lines 20 deep, uh, mm-hmm. ready to buy this stuff. So we saw like, oh, there's a demand. And it was really the first business that I'd had where there was a legitimate demand, where people were actually kind of pulling as hard as they could the, the product from us. And so I, at that time, kind of semi-formalized this idea of, of a push pull business. Um, which I've talked to a bunch of my buddies who have gotten out of the military since and asked questions about being an entrepreneur, is that a business where you have to push your idea or your product on people will work as long as you're pushing it, right? So as long as you're going out and hustling and selling, you can stay in business. But as soon as you want to take a vacation or relax or whatever, um, your product stops selling. And so it's this really tiring enterprise to be engaged in whereas a, a business where people are pulling the product from you and this all seems so obvious you know in kind of retrospect but I didn't get it at the time with all the other businesses I'd started where I, I did have to push um, if people are pulling your product from you then then you can really focus on the things that make a long-term business successful which is the quality of the product the quality of the customer service building the back-end systems that allow you to serve more people and take care of more and more people and that's you know, one good way to assess whether or not a business is going to work. Is that, are you pushing or pulling or being pulled?
0: I agree completely. Like I can completely relate to what you're I've had, I've had a lot of business over the years, but especially with, uh, the, the Amazon business we've had for a couple of years now, mm-hmm. we somehow even kind of knowing this already, we somehow entered into a couple of niches where there wasn't a whole lot of demand. Or one of them has a lot of demand, but our twist or version of it, there really wasn't much demand for. So after spinning my wheels and banging my head against the wall for like over two years, I've I've come to this conclusion of I'm like, oh my god, why why am I not selling something that's in extreme demand? <laughs> and I mean, it seems so obvious now. Yeah. You know, I think yeah, we all fall in love with our ideas, you know, and that's one of the things you got to be careful about is I was in love with a couple of cool ideas and that it appeared like there was some demand with one of them, but there really wasn't much demand for our version of it, you know, so I can completely <laughs> relate to what you're talking about. So I'm, I'm going to have to do a complete pivot on the whole Amazon thing here if I'm going to stay in Amazon because I'm I'm not going to deal with no demand anymore.
1: Sure. Sure. I'd, it makes sense. I kind of going back to that idea of perspective that we talked out at, at the beginning of the show is, is there's a, there's just a forcing of, of having a clear understanding of reality if you want to stay in business. And like you said, you can have, you can fall in love with your product and, and kind of put these reality distortion glasses on and say like, Oh, it's so good. Like I know how good it is. It People will buy it, but if they're not buying it and you're not clearly seeing that, Oh, people don't like this or they do like that, then it's going to be difficult to stay in business. So an example of that early on for us was we used to use, uh, agave and this, you know, this will sound like a kind of crazy nitpicky stuff to people who don't really watch their diet, but mm-hmm. this was kind of life and death for, for paleo treats in the early days is we were using agave, which is a sweetener comes from a plant. Um, and I think you can factually back up this argument that it it's pretty paleo as far as, as paleo desserts go. Okay. But it, at some point within I think the, about the second year, the CrossFit community decided that agave was a poisonous sugar. Um, Again, if you're not in the the health system, you're this kind of diet craze, it, it seems, you know, like nitpicky details that don't matter. But for our customers it mattered. And so we spent about two weeks trying to argue that agave was actually just as good as any other sweetener. And then we, we kind of took a hard look at reality and said, okay, people don't want this. Like it doesn't matter how much, you know, how, what we talk about, whether it's glycemic index or, you know, how people get treated at the origin who are harvesting it or whether it's sustainable, like none of that matters. They don't want the sweetener. And so we switched to honey and it sweetener to deal with. Cause it's got a very distinctive taste. Um, but it also made, in the long run, our products pretty difficult to compete with because we had to figure out how to use honey in a way that it, it isn't normally used specifically in chocolate. So, and again, this is a little bit geeky, but these are the things that you learn as you go into business is that chocolate, when you make it kind of the right way, you try and get all of the water out of it. Well, if you add honey to chocolate, honey's got water in it. So most, almost all chocolatiers will not touch honey, sweetened chocolate because it goes against, you know, the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any of those conceptions. It was just like, oh my, oh my God, we've got to get away from agave. Honey seems like the best alternative. Let's figure out how to use it. So we went through, you know, 100 recipes in the kitchen at home to figure out how to replace it. And I was like, okay, here's how to do it and took the time to to make it right. So it's it's that idea of you have to look at what reality is telling you and, and not worry about what you like or what you think is right um, in, in a sense of like, oh, I've got to be right on this. Um, And that, that goes to another thing that I had learned, and this can sound really bad if you take it out of um, context, but I learned with, with business, you can be right or you can be rich. And if you're in business, then you're, you're in business to make the money. You're not in business to prove how smart you are to everybody or to prove, prove that your way of doing something is the right way. And so the example I give of this is early on in the business, we had a, a customer bought paleo treats and we shipped them to his house. He was a young kid. He went home um, for winter break when he was in college, shipped him to his mom's house where he was going. The box arrived there before he did. His mom said, hey, honey, you know, a box came for you. Um, What should I do with it? He didn't really, he didn't know what to do with it. We hadn't told him how to store them. So he said, oh, just throw them away because they won't be good by the time I get there. I guess he was going to get there in a week or two. So she throws him away. He gets in there and calls us up or emails us and says, hey, will you ship me another box? And we said, well, you know, what happened? Why are you asking for another box? And he said, oh, you sent me the first one, but it arrived too early. So I threw it away. Can you throw you know, you send me another one. And it was this thing like, okay, do you want to be right or do you want to be rich? And I hadn't thought it, I didn't think of it in that way at the time. The only way I thought of it was, no, I'm going to be right on this one. And obviously a guy who throws away your product doesn't deserve to get another box. And so he and I had this bitter war back and forth on PayPal and I'm sure that he trash talked Paleo Treats to every single person he talked to, and probably to this day, um, about how you know our business practices weren't da 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 da. He didn't take care of the customer, and I I think back to that and think the lesson I learned is I could have just shipped him another box, been super cool, and he would have told everybody about how rad Paleo Treats was, and we probably would have had you know at the time it would have made a difference ten extra customers, maybe oh, yeah. twenty, um, but we didn't you know, didn't think of that way. So it was, it's just kind of constant check in of your perspective. Like what are you doing for the long-term health of the business? And, and is it, is, is the decision you're making supporting that or, or taking away from it?
0: You know, a long matter of fact, I, I, I distinctly remember you said, would you rather be right? Or would you rather be rich? I don't know exactly where that came from, but I, know, I remember the first place I heard it from. I was actually in Iraq in 2004 and I was listening on my iPod. Um, a motivational speaker, I think he was, I don't even remember what his name was, but he was like, he'd been like a college baseball player and Mm -hmm. then eventually, you know, big time athlete. And he somehow eventually became a motivational speaker. And he was talking about the day he learned how to, you know, he had to make a decision. Do you want to be right or do you want to be rich? And I remember he kept going over and over that. And it, it really, it really spoke to me because <laughs> the 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 Crane family genes is definitely the we always want to be right kind of mentality. <laughs> totally. And, oh yeah, and I'm like I'm like holy cow, man, I got to so I I constantly have to pull myself away from the whole trying to be right thing. And, when, yeah, and figure out what you know, the long term? Yeah, exactly. What's the long game goals? here, you know? Yep. Um I get I heard it put another way was uh, if a man wins an argument with his wife, is he truly better off?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Who wins in that argument? Yeah, exactly.
0: So, um, and I've, you know, I've been trying to explain that to my son cause he's a lot like me. I'm like, Hey, Hey, I, 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 you want to be right? You want to be rich? And of course what we're talking about has nothing to do with making money or anything, but it, it kind of sinks in. Oh yeah. I quit trying to you know shove your opinion down other people's throats, but in, in customer service is the same way. And again, I go back to my Amazon business. We've got this one product and some of the people don't, they don't get it. They don't use it the right way. So then they criticize it. And the whole sure. time I'm like, kind of like what you're trying to do with agave. Agave is a great sweetener. Quit saying that. We're trying to change how you think about agave. Well, hey, yep. what man? If it's you know that that round's already gone downrange. The, yep. the agave is out. So you either get rid of agave, or or your your customer base, the people that got you started, the CrossFit industry, is going to shun you.
1: Yeah, they'll find someone
0: else who does listen to them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, nobody—you know—just like anybody else, they don't want to be told, you know, how to think. So, um, and sometimes that's tough, man, because you're you're in love with your idea, and even to this day, you probably still think agave is a valid uh, paleo-type sweetener, but you can't use it in your products because your main customer base has shunned it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that goes to a much bigger idea of, of what's actually healthy and what we've learned from mm-hmm. nine years or eight years of, of selling desserts, but yeah.
0: Okay, so so tell me about Paleo Treats. Where did I find them, and why are they good for me?
1: Sure. So uh, we started back in 2009, and we started it. I'll give you kind of the, the long answer. Um, mm-hmm. Is we started online and immediately bought PaleoTreats.com, and I think for anyone thinking about buying, starting a business, I think it's a a really healthy and nice first step to buy the domain. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's a very, it's a relatively small expense. Maybe it's 45 bucks a year. If you buy your hosting, maybe it's 90 bucks a year. Now, if you buy your hosting with it, if you just buy the domain, it's less than 10 bucks a year and you just secure it. And by domain, I mean, paleotreats.com or youridea.com or whatever it is. And that, that's what we did and we had the idea from the beginning to sell desserts online directly to people um, But at, at the very beginning we thought that we would start by selling desserts online and that stores would come and find us and say They wanted to open up accounts and that pretty soon we'd be in every Whole Foods in the country and then we you know sell it within three years for a billion dollars and What we found is that that's not really a, a business works or hasn't worked that way for us and um, but that we had this really cool opportunity to continually develop, um, really joyful relationships directly with our customers. And that was something that, that had a bunch of value. Um, I talk about, you know, going back to the very first girl I ever met, like I fell in love completely with every girl I ever dated and it was always this, it's a really nice thing and they all, you know, tore my heart out until I found my wife. But it was always this really nice feeling of being in a relationship with someone. And I think with paleo treats, every time we have a new customer, we get to fall in love with them. And we get to kind of serve them this thing that that they're really looking for, which is a dessert that doesn't have any gluten, any grain, or any dairy. So it doesn't have kind of the typical inflammatory foods found in, in most desserts. There's no stabilizers, no preservatives, no xylitol, you know, no, no crap. And so really our market, even though it started out as being for this really narrow paleo niche is now widening way out to anyone who wants a dessert that makes them feel good. So most desserts in the long run, most desserts that you eat now, if you have ice cream or a Snickers bar or, you know, a tray of cookies, whatever it is, it'll feel really good in your mouth and tongue. But by the time it gets to your guts or it goes on the exit path, you're going to feel terrible. And whether you feel that kind of in your guts or you have, you know, a skin condition, you break out an acne or you just don't feel good you know, at any point, like most desserts, most sweet things today have either way too much sugar in them with not enough, uh, associated fiber or just flat out too much sugar, or they have a bunch of other stuff in there that reacts with your body, whether it's gluten or grain or dairy. And so what we wanted was to, to build a series of relationships based on making people feel really good throughout their entire use of, of the product of the dessert. And so that's what we do now is we sell These desserts, we have a brownie, a chocolate bar, a sweet granola bar. We have something that looks like a peanut butter chocolate cup, except it's almond butter. Hmm. Um, We're coming out with a lemon bar. We have all these really tasty desserts that we have said in eight years, we've only come out with six of them. Um, We're going to have really strict ingredients that are are strictly paleo. Um, Back to that honey agave thing. So we're Mm -hmm. going to go with only the most paleo of ingredients so that you know that when you're eating this, you're getting something good and it's not something you're ever going to have to quibble about. And these things are going to taste amazing. And those have been kind of the two twin guiding lights of the actual product itself. Um, and so yeah. when you order them, you know, you pay five seventy five dollars a cookie, you get $69 bucks for 12 of them. People are like, oh, that seems like a lot. It's like, yep, it is a lot. Think about what happens when you're buying a regular chocolate chip cookie, right? We're paying $8 a pound or seven something a pound for almond flour. And that regular chocolate chip cookie, they're paying 23 cents a pound for wheat flour, so you think about what the the difference in quality and what you're getting is, and the difference in price, you know, you're, you're basically getting this ripping deal on on super healthy desserts, and that's that's the kind of the, the short version of of answering what what we do.
0: See, a lot of those like you know, quote healthy or sugar free sweets and treats. After you have one, it you don't get that you don't get that. Granted, it's good for you, but you also you also don't get that satisfaction of oh, I've had a treat. Do you, yeah, it like, tastes healthy. Yeah, like with the paleo, <laughs> with, with like do you do you notice that with the paleo? I mean, I guess if you're doing paleo all the time, you're past that. But with the paleo treats, is there is there some of that uh, satisfaction of oh, I actually had something sweet, and it satisfies that that urge.
1: Yeah, it it takes something that is is normally a sin, which is dessert or a you know, a guilty pleasure, Mm -hmm. which is how it's been marketed forever. And it, it makes it an almost essential and health supporting thing in your life. So it's, it's an indulgence that you're totally fine with. It's, it's as if you treated eating a steak and a salad as an indulgence or a treat when in reality, like, oh, that's, that's a pretty, you know, normal meal or whatever, your protein and your carbs and fats. It's just part of a, a well-balanced, healthy meal is at the end of it, yeah, you should totally be able to have a dessert that doesn't throw the rest of the meal off. And that's what we wanted to add in with Paleo Treats was a whole way to do that.
0: Right. Well, hey, Nick, uh, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time here. I do want to give you the last the last word. Uh, so again, that's paleo- paleotreats.com is the website if, uh, if we're interested in trying out your product. Um, on, on the last word, if you got advice to somebody, a veteran spouse, somebody in the veteran community that's out there looking to start a business, uh, what kind of advice would you have for them before we go?
1: The big thing is just start taking those steps forward. Um, is There's no kind of set or series of advice that will prevent you from making mistakes. So just when you make them kind of acknowledge them as fast as you can, fix them and move on and know that every single one of us who has been successful before you, I mean, 2015 FedEx picked us as a top 10 small business in America. That doesn't mean that everything we did was perfect. We, most of the decisions we made were mistakes, but it's just how fast you can recover from them and knowing that it's completely normal to screw up. And what defines your success as a, as a businessman or businesswoman is just how you handle that and how you keep on going. And that, you can totally do whatever you, you set your mind to, as long as you're willing to, to fix those mistakes as soon as you find them. And best of luck to you.
0: Awesome. Pleasure uh, pleasure hearing your story. Um, looking forward to future success of Paleo Treats and, and everything else. Thanks for being here. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, super stoked.
0: All right, these two veterans are asking Mike. As you can tell from listening to the Veteran on the Move podcast, interviews are a great way to tell your story and spread the word about your business. If you would like to get booked as a podcast guest, I recommend Interview Valet. You can check out Interview Valet at veteranonthemove.com slash valet. Be sure to check out thrive15.com, the world's premier online education platform that helps entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs learn how to start or grow a successful business. Start your free 30-day membership by going to thrive15.com and use the promo code VETERAN.